a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 114 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster on hiatus due to quarantining for the coronavirus. But I'm still in the Twin Cities metro area, and as always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or pretty much everywhere, Google Podcasts. If there's a platform that we're not on, just send me an email and I'll do what I can, but otherwise, feel free to subscribe, and if you feel so inclined, please share this podcast on your favorite social media platform. I got a unique call on Monday from the activities director at Lakeville North High School, which is the school that I run my streaming partnership with. They took part in the Be the Light Minnesota campaign, and it's not exclusive to Minnesota. It's something that's happening all over the country where teams are turning on the lights in their stadiums for 20 minutes and 20 seconds to honor the class of 2020. And he had the idea of streaming it. And my initial thought was, what are we going to stream? Are we just going to point the camera at the football field and watch him turn on the lights, leave it on for 20 minutes and turn it off? He pretty much just said, yes, that's uh, that's all I had in mind. But I thought if we're going to do it, we should do it a little bit better. And I thought it would be appropriate to really kind of give the kids the send-off and the spotlight that they deserved. So I talked with the activities director and got a hold of just about all of the spring sports coaches, since those are the ones... They're all the students are affected by this, but the spring sports kids are the ones that are having their spring seasons either totally canceled or there's still some talk that they might have a short, delayed season early in the summer. But again, I doubt that that's going to happen. So the spring sports kids are really getting the shaft. So we talked with their coaches and had them just talk about their team, talk about uh, the lessons that their team can learn from this and gave them little parting messages if they don't have a season and ended up getting almost 350 unique streams for that one, which is maybe more than a lot of the the girls basketball games and girls hockey games that I did uh, during actual sports season when there were sports going on. So I thought that was kind of a cool moment. It was really eerie just sitting at the top of the hill, kind of a chilly night, just watching those lights turn on. A bunch of kids, and I guess they, I don't know that they were kids, I assume they were kids, but a whole bunch of cars, when the lights turned on, were parked in a parking lot adjacent to the stadium on the bottom of this hill, and they were all honking, and that came through, and I thought it actually turned out pretty well, but it's definitely something that I never thought I would be doing as a sports broadcaster, uh, just doing a broadcast of lights turning on and then turning off 20 minutes and 20 seconds later. It was a unique thing. I'm glad I got to do it. I hope I don't ever have to do it again, that we can get back to some sense of normalcy by fall, but who knows at this point. What I do know 
is that this week's guest is Ian Eagle, the voice of the Brooklyn Nets and also a network broadcaster for CBS. And he is the first person to come back for a second episode. So I'm happy to have him here. And in the first episode, we talked a lot about his career and how he came up and different ways to improve in the business. And we do some of that in this episode as well, but with all the negativity that we're seeing, I just tried to keep this episode pretty loose. So we talk about uh, foods that he's never tried, and there's a large amount of them that you would never expect. And we talk about Tiger King, and we just kind of have a good time. We still get into some great discussion about how to properly set up analysts and build chemistry. We talk about some broadcasting stuff as well, but I just wanted to treat this one a little bit differently because right now we're all having a tough time, and he's one of those broadcasters who's just naturally entertaining in his conversational skills. He's a funny dude, so we just kind of went to some weird places. If you have a problem with that, then you should turn it off now. Otherwise, I'm happy that you're tuning in, and I hope you enjoy our second episode with Ian Eagle. Ian, thanks for coming on the show. Is there a t-shirt? Is there some kind of pin? Is there a brooch? Is there something that I get for being the first second timer? You know what? We'll have to think about that. But right now, you just get the pride of knowing that, that your career has now been officially made. <laughs> that's, that's good enough for me, Logan. Yeah, My you're... pleasure. You're the first two-timer on a very, very niche, small podcast, but this is being recorded on April 2nd. They all start to blur together, but this would be the NCAA Tournament Elite 8 or Final Four weekend. I'm assuming you would be very busy that time under normal circumstances. Uh, What are you doing in quarantine right now? In quarantine right now, I think I'm doing what most of America is doing, trying to be productive, but also knowing that there are limits to that productivity. So uh, my, I'd say the last five years of scheduling has allowed me four to six weeks off during the summer. Prior to that, in the previous 20 years, I would take jobs, I would do local radio, I'd take on other assignments. And that was not a considerable amount of time. But the last five years, I I made a decision to try to shut things down a bit more and clear my brain and turn off my brain. So the first week or so of this, it it wasn't that unfamiliar to me because I, I had been doing it. Now, as we get a little deeper in and you start getting itchy and you realize that you didn't complete what you normally do over the course of your broadcast season, uh, the itch is there and uh, there, there's no way to fulfill that itch. You know, I know people have had some fun in our business doing some play by play of stuff around the house or outside their home. Uh, those are uh, nice moments of levity, but it, it's not the real thing and you can't simulate the real thing. So, Probably like everybody else, I've been streaming a lot. I've been spending a lot of time with my family, which has been great. We actually like one another, so that that works in our household. And then probably for an hour or two hours a day, I end up going down these rabbit holes of watching old content, whether it's my stuff, whether it's player-specific 
NBA guys where I'll watch 15, 20 minutes of their highlights and then bop around and see where the internet takes me next. Uh, that is more or less what has been happening here. I grew a beard and that didn't go all that well. 17, <laughs> 18 days of growth. I quickly realized there's a reason why I'm not a beard guy. I tried to turn it into a goatee. That wasn't well received in my household, made it into a handlebar mustache. I got uh, a lot of uh, belly laughs from that look. And then I just went with my more traditional look after that. So that experiment ended pretty quickly. That's funny because I'm actually, I call it my virus beard. And it started just because I think I went a week and just was lazy and didn't shave and said, you know what? I don't have anything. I'm just going to let this roll. And it looks awful. Yeah. And I don't know how much yeah, longer yeah, yeah. it's going to go. Yeah, Logan, I, I went to bed one night, uh, the last night before I before I shaved and, and felt like I was sleeping with a chinchilla on my pillow. And I decided this, this isn't for me. I need to make some changes. We'll start off this conversation asking the one thing that everyone in America is talking about. Have you seen Tiger King yet? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on episode six. I'm baffled. I don't know if this would have been considered a, a tremendous documentary if it was released in October or November. Is it just because we have so much time and we need to fill that time and the curiosity was peaked? I don't know under normal circumstances if I would have stuck with this after one episode. Uh, I was asking many questions that are still yet to be answered, but it has been uh, a distraction and <laughs> there is some entertainment value. So yeah, I, I know all about Joe Exotic. Uh, I'm, I'm in tune with what's happening uh, with Tiger King. Are there any silver linings of things you've always maybe wanted to do if you had had more time that you've been able to able to actually pursue? Have you tried reading more or playing more board games? Anything to pass yeah, the time? It, you know, Logan, there, there is no right answer to that. Uh, I think everybody goes through their own personal way of handling this and processing it and navigating through it. You know, it's interesting with social media that people will post things that they're doing and Sometimes that doesn't strike the right tone for me, but that's just my opinion. And sometimes it's just nice to, to escape to something else and think about something else. But there's no right or wrong answer to any of these questions. We're dealing with something that we do not have a playbook on. And because of that, it is a very personal part of how you handle it. Uh, people that like to clean in these moments and just make sure everything is, is up to snuff. I've done a little bit of that with my own office, just getting rid of stuff. And yeah, probably would not have committed myself to that if I just didn't have the extra time. But uh, the part of, of this equation that I would make very uh, strong statements on is you do what you have to do in order to get through this. And in addition, uh, be the best version of yourself, maintain a positive attitude, and follow along the instructions, which is social distancing and quarantining for the most part. Uh, there, there's no reason to push the envelope here. We all want this to end, and it's up to each individual to do their small part in the larger scope picture 
of taking the next step and trying to get back to some form of normalcy. When is the last time you've left the house? Ah, I did go outside yesterday. It was our across-the-street neighbor's birthday, so we made a pact that we would all stand 10 to 20 feet away from one another, but at least make her feel happy and joyous about her day. So there were about uh, 15 to 20 people sprinkled on various lawns wishing our across-the-street neighbor a, a happy birthday. That was the last time. And one more virus-related question, and I've had an observation that a whole bunch of businesses or mailing lists or things that I have not thought about in years have all sent me emails saying how they're handling the COVID-19 outbreak and how you should uh, handle their business or how you should consider using their business or not using their business. I know I got one from Delta Airlines and one from uh, a (laughs) dentist from years ago. Uh, what is the most unique email list you've surprisingly found that you're still on? <laughs> I have not been as vigilant as I should be in trying to unsubscribe to these. Um definitely someone that for a long stretch would delete, 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 delete. I now, I, I'm going to look at the number right now just because we're we're talking about it. Uh, I have... And this is shocking to me because I was not this person. I have 1,048 unread emails. Now, I've read all the ones I need to read. Anything of importance, I make sure that, that I'm uh, completely engaged with. But if it does not affect my life in the here and now, I'm not opening it. And that's probably a wise thing right now. You are famously not on any social media. I almost wish I was there right now, just with all the all the bad news that you see. Was there ever a time where you considered getting on social media, or was it always just, this is weird, I don't want to do it? Yeah, it's interesting, Logan. My My feeling wasn't, this is weird, I don't want to do it. My feeling at the beginning was, I just don't have the time to do it, and I don't have the time to commit to it, to do it well. Anything that I do in our business, I try to do well. Every assignment that I have, I put everything, I pour everything I've got into that assignment. And yeah, sometimes there are five, six assignments a week So it requires a great deal of time and energy to give everything that you've got. So I just made a very conscious decision early that I was not going to be able to commit to it. I return every text. I return every email other than those that are trying to solicit my business to buy a new uh, belt. I am very much focused on one-on-one relationships and making sure I'm maintaining those. But when you look at the mass quantities of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, I just knew that I couldn't do it the way that I would have wanted to do it. And there would be people that were upset and frustrated or disappointed that I wasn't getting back to them or I wasn't engaging with them. And I just didn't like the idea of that. So my decision really had more to do with the fact that I I just couldn't be the best version of myself for those platforms, and I elected not to participate. That doesn't mean I don't pay attention. 
I do know what's happening. I am on Twitter uh, with a burner account that allows me to see the information and to stay up to date with uh, reporters and media members and athletes that, that I believe I should follow and be aware of. I just don't participate. I have a good friend whose wife has like 17 or 20, a whole bunch of people that she follows old school, like bookmarked in tabs, but refuses to join. And we, uh, we all call her Twitterless Molly. Should we start calling you Twitterless Ian? <laughs> you can, uh, whatever works. I'm, I'm cool with the moniker. Uh, I, I hope people realize that uh, I'm not admonishing the whole social media culture. I understand how important it is. I also understand uh, that sometimes you can get carried away with it where it dominates your life and other things that should be a priority now move to the back burner because you are so uh, enthralled and ensconced in uh, doing what you need to do on these various platforms. So uh, it, it runs hot and cold, and I think everybody has to figure out what works again for them and not allow it to take over their day-to-day life 24-7. It was episode 58 was the last time that you were on, which was a little over two years ago. And a lot has happened since then, it turns out. And one of those things is your son Noah has moved up from being in school and now is the voice of the Clippers. What is it like having your son as a peer? Yeah, Logan, this year we were really fortunate that I did a couple of games on TNT that involved the Clippers, so it allowed us to be in the arena at the same time. Clippers were in Philadelphia, and then the Clippers were in San Francisco, which ironically was the last game we both did before the NBA suspended play. So while we didn't get to do the Nets and Clippers, uh, those two games were going to take place in March, and I was going to have other responsibilities at that point with the Atlantic 10 championship and the NCAA tournament, we did get to see one another and we, we did get to share that moment together. It's been awesome. Uh, Logan, every part of it has been awesome. He's had a great experience. It's a terrific organization. They were obviously playing at a very high level. So that makes the job even more fun. I think Noah's enjoyed every aspect of the job, the travel, the competition, Uh, the venues, the relationships that he's developed. And then obviously for our relationship, it has added this whole other element. He can relate to uh, so much of what I've now done for the last 26 years. And our conversations have this additional uh, level that, that we can get to because he understands. He understands uh, what, all of this is about in broadcasting in the NBA. Look, on a personal level, it's the highest compliment when your child is interested in pursuing what you do for a living. And uh, to do it in the way that he did, going to Syracuse like I did, and then uh, getting an opportunity in the NBA, he didn't choose the easiest path. Uh, To me, he chose the more challenging path, which was Uh, going to the same school that I attended and having to uh, deal with people that view it as uh, uh, this is the son of someone who went here and uh, 
it would have been easier for him to go somewhere else, but uh, that's where he felt comfortable, and uh, it's it's really been a blast. What advice did you give him, if, without giving too much away that would be overly personal, about what it would take to get through that first year? Well, what I found with Noah that first year, Logan, was he was introducing himself to people, but he wouldn't say his last name. And he would just say, hey, I'm Noah. And I think it was a very conscious effort on his part to not cloud any of the dynamic between him and fellow students or him and professors or him and media members in Syracuse. Uh, at first, I, I thought to myself, well, you know, that that's probably not the best way to go, but that's what worked for him, and that's what made him comfortable. So once I understood where he was coming from, I would say he did that the first two years, to be perfectly frank. And then once he got to a point where he had established himself as someone that has an aptitude for this and that belongs there and isn't there based on his last name, then the comfort level shifted to a point where he didn't think about that and didn't worry about it. But he had to figure that out on his own. Uh, that wasn't something that came from me. When he made the decision to, to go to Syracuse, he knew that there would be uh, some potential challenges along the way. There were also a, a lot of benefits. So he also understood that part of it. It's, it's the, the yin and the yang of, of this situation. Not everybody has the easiest route, as we know, in this field. Not everybody has a difficult route. Everybody has to find their own way, and that held true for him. He had to, he had to navigate it in, in his own style. And I'm assuming you know this. I think we texted about it, but I had him on the podcast, and I know yes, that his story. in person, in fact. Yeah, and his story, the way he got it really had little or nothing to do with you opening doors from him, from what he told me anyway. But now you get put into the, the Jack Buck role, so to speak, where people are whispering or saying, you know what, hey, he got it just because of who his dad is. Uh, what's that like from your side? Well, uh, from my side, what I told him from the very beginning when he was interested in pursuing this as a career, I said, look, here's the bottom line. In our industry... Uh, the people determine what their opinions are, and the proof is, at the time, on the tape or on the DVD. Now it's the proof is in the link. Uh, you, you can't fool people. Uh, this is just how it is. Uh, the proof is in the pudding. You can either do it or you can't. And obviously there are varying levels of, of this job, as we know. His story, which is a really interesting one, was a case of someone that that went into an interview and fortunately for him, knocked it out of the park in a very potentially challenging situation, meeting with uh, television executives and executives of an NBA franchise doing an audition on the spot in Los Angeles, flying back to Syracuse, then getting a phone call that they need him to fly back to 
the West Coast in Seattle and meet with one of the richest men in the world who happens to own the Clippers and sit down and have a talk for 30, 45 minutes, an hour. And that's all based on you. How do you handle that situation? That goes well beyond broadcasting, how you carry yourself and the kind of vibe that you give and how you connect with other people. So uh, it's, it's a really interesting story in that we work so hard in this field to have the right sound and to put together the best tape that we can. Sometimes it does come down to how you connect with another human being. And that's the part that I've tried to share with so many young broadcasters, not just their play-by-play, but who they are as a person. Are they a balanced person? Are they a positive person? And how do they treat people? That becomes a big part of this. And how do you fit into the group? Are you a good teammate? All of these intangibles that factor in. Uh, You could talk to 100 different broadcasters, Logan, as we know, and you could get 100 different stories as to how they made it. But you would like to think the common thread is that uh, when the time came to step forward in the moment, they did just that, whether it was based on performance on the air or off the air, the way that they portrayed themselves and handled themselves in any given situation. One of the things that we talked about this the first time, so I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle on it, but we talked about the personality and being entertaining in a broadcast. And we're talking a little bit about family. You grew up in a family, not with broadcasters, but with entertainers. Your father was an actor and comedian. Your mother was a singer. What influence did being around entertainers in that in those early times as you were growing up, what effect did that have on you having the style of broadcast that you have now? Well, Logan, what I saw literally were my parents on stage. So when you see your parents in front of large groups of people, 500, 1,000 people, and they're entertaining them, and they're laughing, uh, the audience is at my father, who was a stand-up comedian. So the goal was to get them to laugh. Or they were moved by my mother's singing performance. She had an incredible voice, incredible stage presence. And to witness that on a day-to-day basis, uh, they were hard workers. Uh, they hustled. And I was there. I got to see it. It changes you. It changes your perspective. So when I decided that I wanted to do this and they were 100% behind me as a young person, when I articulated to them that this was my dream, uh, that was incredibly empowering. And I didn't have to worry about the question marks that so many others have to worry about when they tell their parents what it is they want to do. And the first reaction often is, well, what are you talking about? That, that's not a real job at least back when I was growing up, this is the seventies when most people would have reacted. Well, that, that's like going to join the circus. What are you talking about? You want to be a sportscaster. Now it's much more acceptable. And because there are more opportunities than ever before, I think a lot of parents can see it as a vehicle and a way that their child can make a living back then. Not quite as much, but I just, 
I just knew that if I did this and made it my profession, that I wanted my own personality to come through, that I wasn't going to be a, a machine and a robot. I wanted a blend. I wanted to certainly do the job well and be considered a, a professional and be qualified and credible in what I do. But I also wanted to try to entertain as well and view it through that prism. And you can't go too far on either side or you're not being balanced. So uh, you have to pick and choose your spots. You have to be smart. Uh, this is not doing amateur hour at, at your local comedy club. Uh, but if you can sprinkle in some personality, if you can bring some levity, if you can connect with your analyst, then odds are you're providing something that could be memorable or could resonate with an audience. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. You're trying to inform and you're trying to entertain. Is that singing voice hereditary? If we took you to a karaoke bar that didn't let anybody within 10 feet of each other, uh, would you drown? <laughs> I would not embarrass myself. I will leave it at that. I'm not going to uh, try to humble brag, but I, I would be just fine with a microphone and karaoke. What is your go-to karaoke song? I don't do it. I, I'm not telling you that I go do it. <laughs> I'm telling you if I had to do it, I could. Fair enough. One of the other aspects of your broadcast that I really enjoy, particularly is the way that you spotlight and really just seem to click with a lot of different analysts. And uh, there's been a whole list of them that you've worked with over the years. Dan, Dan Fouts and uh, Bill Raftery. You've worked with them all. What, and I'm just starting to get into a little bit of um, TV work, low budget uh, streaming stuff, and I just wonder what tips would you give to people trying to make that jump on how to best make the analyst the star? Well, it requires you to have a lack of ego in certain aspects of the job. And I accepted that very early. I think you have to have some form of an ego to do this job and to do it well and have the confidence and conviction to get out on the air and to do your job at a high level. But to be a good teammate, that's where you have to be devoid of ego and understand that spotlighting the analyst is good for everybody. It's better if you're good together than if you're good individually. I just had a epiphany very early in my career, and it was probably because I was working with Bill Raftery, and he was so damn entertaining that I realized it's not about me. It's about us. And if he sounds good, we sound good. And that became a, a mantra for me throughout my career. Anybody that I worked with, I just thought to myself, let me get the most out of them that they have and it's going to be good for everybody. If they walk away feeling good about what they did, if the producer walks away feeling good about what we did, then everybody benefits. So uh, the way my career evolved, I ended up working with a lot of people, more than 100 people. And I say this with complete honesty. I really tried 
to maximize what each of these analysts brought to the table. Not every one of them is funny. Not every one of them was great on X's and O's. Not every one of them was quick enough to go back and forth and, and volley on the air. But they all brought something. They all had an area of expertise. And now it's my job to best get to that and to highlight that. And it really starts off the air more than anything else. Uh, if, if you're one of those broadcasters that's just locked into their own stuff and you're not thinking about anything else until you get on the air, then you've got a problem because you just wasted potential bonding time with the person that you're going to work with. And not every partner that I've had has been my best friend, but I can tell you that I got along with all of them in some way. I found common ground. I found uh, something for us to bond over. And the carryover is what you get once the red light goes on. So if there's a natural, easy byplay off the air, odds are there's going to be a natural, easy byplay on the air. I've had a couple instances where I met the analyst an hour before the game. I didn't know them. I was thrown into a situation a number of years ago at NBA All-Star Weekend. They needed me to call what was then the D-League All-Star Game, now the G-League. And the analyst was Nancy Lieberman, one of the great basketball players in history. And I had never met her. Literally sat down with her an hour before the broadcast and we started talking and I asked her about her family and her background and where she lives and what she's into. And it wasn't an interview. It was just a conversation. And that's not to say that I used any of that on the air. It just gave me a better sense of who she was. And it allowed me to see her in a light that would remind me in game what buttons I might be able to push, where I could go and where she would be comfortable because I got a feel for what kind of person she was off the air. Ultimately, that's what it is. It's trust. When you go on the air with somebody else, it's two and a half hours, three hours, depending upon the sport, of the ultimate trust that I'm not going to take you somewhere that you're not comfortable going. And anywhere that I take you, I would be willing to go there with you. And it's a team effort. And that's the one thing that I want any of my analysts to know, that we're in it together. Do you watch old games of them with other people to try to figure out kind of what their strengths and weaknesses are in your preparation? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, I form my own opinion. Look, if, if there's an analyst that's on television and I know that I'm working with them in a couple of weeks, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll pay attention. But I'm not seeking it out. I'm not researching. I'm not calling every one of their former play-by-play announcers. I'm forming my own opinion based on my personal experience and trying to start with a blank slate so that I can take it places where I think we can go as opposed to being told by someone else, oh, yeah, you're not going to like working with them or, oh, yeah, you're going to see they get uncomfortable when you do that. Well, I got to find out on my own. So a lot of it is based on personal experience more so than researching what they like, what they don't like. Uh, to me, that becomes a, a little bit uh, too uh, rehearsed and contrived. 
I believe in authenticity and I believe in trying to find uh, that, that realness in a combination. And the only way to do it is to go out and do it yourself. Had a couple questions via social media that I uh, told people that if they sent in, I would ask. And the first one was how you came up with your jubilation in Newark call with that, that, that <laughs> guy uh, making the funny face in the background. Oh, yeah. That was uh, Net Celtics, if I remember correctly, with Darren Williams uh, making a big three late in the game. It's funny. Uh, he was wearing a fairly loud shirt, uh, had some pink to it, if I remember correctly. And I kept seeing him pop up in the background of some of our replays. And I was keeping an eye on him because it looked like it was building. It was building for him. He was into the game. But I said nothing about him because there was no reason to say anything about him. What my producers and directors have learned through the years is I really embrace something that's different, that's unique. And if they can provide it, whether it's fan-based, whether it's situation-based, you know, I've, I've been enamored with drinks that spill at basketball games because I just find it hilarious that a game could be stopped because a fan had their drink knocked over by the ball and they literally have to go over, stop the game, towel off the ball, clean up the area. Sometimes it's sticky. So producers and directors that I work with, they'll now look for it because they know how entertaining I find it. So with that particular young man, I just saw it building and my stage manager and I had uh, gotten on the same page. He was seeing what I was seeing. So when we then went in for a shot of him after the jumper, I, uh, I don't know. I strung those words together and it, and it seemed to fit the moment. Another one doesn't make a lot of sense, but it says, how do you do both Jets and Nets games around the same time? We're going to change that to during that crossover season where you have uh, multiple games in multiple sports. How do you make that schedule work and get all the preparation squeezed in simultaneously? Yeah, uh, Logan, it's all about compartmentalizing and getting ahead more than anything else. If you're a procrastinator, uh, if you're someone that uh, goes to bed the night before the game saying, you know what, I'll just deal with it tomorrow, then this, this job is not for you. Uh, you've got to be ahead of the curve. For me, if I know that I've got X team coming up and they're playing Y team, I'm going to start chipping away early. And I've done it for so long, you would think, oh, then you have a really good handle on how to do it. Every year, I feel the stress like anybody else. And oftentimes, you, you feel the stress based on things that are out of your control. I feel comfortable once the game starts, everything is, is going to work out, that I'm prepared and I'm ready and I will be in the moment and I will perform when the time comes. But sometimes it's just the logistics that scare you, getting from city to city, making sure that flights land when they're supposed to and uh, people are where they need to be in order to make everything work. That's, that's the hard part and that's out of your control. 
the games themselves, look, you know this, Logan, and a lot of your listeners know this if they're in the business. I like the preparation. I always have. I think that's a big reason why I was interested in this job. I enjoy learning about the athletes. I enjoy memorizing. I enjoy the storylines. I enjoy the conversations. So I just don't look at it as work in the common description of the word. I look at it as part of the job and a really fun part of the job, uh, getting yourself prepared for all of these events. The logistical part, that's where the challenges come into play. I want to go back to our excited gentleman in the pink shirt and talking about the people with spilled drinks and mixing in those observations and and things that you see in the arena. When do you decide the right time to mix that into a game, and, and when is it maybe not appropriate? Well, I think uh, you have to have a good feel for the action and the rhythm of the action, and I always try to put myself in the position of the viewer. Would I find this interesting? I'm constantly asking myself that over the course of a broadcast, and that's before I just toss out a tidbit or get into a story or mention a quote or dig into a stat. I'm constantly asking myself, would I find this interesting? Would I find this interesting? And that's the same for things that are a little bit offbeat. Uh, it's great that I find it entertaining, but then I have to sell that entertainment to a mass audience. Oftentimes, you get to push it a bit more on the local broadcast. I think you know, my personality probably came through more on local broadcast before they ever did on national broadcast because it's a different audience. They know you. They're familiar with you. Uh, they know the team, and they're a bit more locked in on your style. National audience, you don't know who's tuning in. It's such a wide variety. It's a dichotomy of different people that check out the action, from true blue sports fans to casual fans to gamblers to spouses of sports fans. So you have to be a little bit more aware and selective of where you go and how you go there uh, based on the event that you're covering. But certainly on the Nets broadcast, where I've been a part of it for 26 years, I feel really comfortable with the audience. And although these games are on League Pass and they're basically all national games now just because of the way the Internet works, I'm still willing to probably go places that I may not be willing to go, or at least I would think twice about if it was a network broadcast. How has the process of gathering information changed with the advance of the internet? What was it like before you could just go online and Google a player and find out everything and more that you could ever <laughs> need to know? Yes, Logan. Man discovered fire, and then everything changed. <laughs> I mean, I don't go that far back, but clearly when I began in 1994 doing the NBA, we just didn't have the tools like we do today. So a lot of your information was gathered from media notes and the media guide and talking to the opposing broadcaster or a coach and trying to get more information or dealing with your PR director and trying to cull some some nuggets 
so that you had a little bit more color to your broadcast. And it's been a blessing and a curse because the blessing is obvious. There's more information than ever. The curse is that maybe you rely on that information more than the original way of gaining information, which was talking to people and being curious and asking questions. And we've shied away from that because so much is now right there, 365 days a year for uh, you to consume. So look, like everybody else, I'm on the internet and I'm researching my assignment uh, let's say on a football game, Monday morning, I'm digging in and I'm trying to accumulate as many different tidbits and notes that I can so that when I'm walking into that stadium on Sunday, I'm fully prepared and nothing's going to slip through the cracks. That's, that's a great part of, of the process. Uh, but there was a way to do it, and there was a way to still do it professionally before all of this was available. It just required you to use a different muscle in your brain. I remember last time we chatted on this podcast, I wanted to ask you about something, but we ran out of time. So I'm going to ask it now. You hosted a show way back uh, when you were uh, doing talk radio in New York called Bagels and Baseball. And I just wanted to know what that show was about how do you combine those two things into a show worth listening to? <laughs> uh, don't let the title lead you astray. It had nothing to do with bagels other than the fact that it aired on a Sunday morning on WFAN radio. And my co-host was Tommy John, who was a truly accomplished pitcher but is probably more well-known for the injury and the surgery that took place. But Tommy John, terrific guy, a longtime pitcher in Major League Baseball and known for his stint with the Yankees as well as the Dodgers and a bunch of other teams, was my co-host. And basically, at the time, uh, this was a vehicle for WFAN to get a little more specific with the programming and put a show on the air on Sunday morning that they just had not done. This was still early in the sports radio craze and different stations. There weren't a whole lot of them at that point. This was, I want to say 1993 for the 1993 baseball season. Uh, they were testing things. They were trying things out. It was trial and error. And uh, that show was a baseball centric show that we did Every Sunday morning, Tommy John would drive in from a long distance away. I think he was living in North Carolina at the time. He had formerly lived in New Jersey, so he had some connections with the radio station. And we really hit it off. He was, he was a great guy. He was a pleasure to be around. He had tremendous stories. And we would open up the phone lines, and you would be amazed at how many people would call in on a Sunday morning in New York enjoying their breakfast, maybe a bagel. Uh, that that was basically the premise behind the title. I think alliteration and something being considered catchy is uh, what what drove the the whole uh, storyline behind that. So I read that you are anti condiment, and I was just wondering when you have bagels, does that extend all the way to no cream cheese on a bagel? If you are going to uh, have a bagel with baseball. 
Yeah, nobody nobody has ever asked me that, Logan. I uh, I am a cream cheese guy. So if you consider cream cheese a condiment, then that means I've had a condiment. If you don't put it in that category, then I remain condiment free. No ketchup, no mustard, the biggies. Those are the real biggies. But I guess I've I've crossed the line in some other areas. I will have barbecue sauce. And I know what may go into the barbecue sauce, but I don't want to think about it. Why is that? Why do you not use condiments? Do you just not like them? Is there some story behind it that you just don't know what's in it? What's the story there? Yeah, the story, you'd probably have to get me on a couch with a psychiatrist to really get <laughs> to the bottom of it. It, it has uh, something to do with my youth, and I was turned off by them as a kid and my parents were not big into them, so they didn't force me. And as I started getting older, I realized that uh, there was free will and I did not buckle the peer pressure. And yes, uh, there was a stretch, uh, I'll be the first to say it, where I, I was uh, repulsed by, by the idea of it. Now, if you forced me, I probably could get it down without heaving. But there was definitely a point in my life where where I would have I would have upchucked. Are there any other just like foods that you hate that give you that reaction? Well, I hate a strong. Uh, there are a number of foods I've never eaten, and people are just amazed by this. Uh, we could just do a one-hour podcast on this. I'd rather not uh, get into this subject matter any deeper than we have to. We don't have to delve. I'll just throw out some that I've never had. I've never consumed. So to say that I don't like them is probably not even fair because I don't know. I haven't had them. I've never had a cup of coffee. I've never had, some of these will amaze you. I've never had watermelon. I've never had uh, eggplant. I've never had kiwi. Never had a salad in my life. I'm just going to give you a, a small sampling. Instead of making this the dominant part of the conversation, we'll just leave it at that. Fair enough. With your travel schedule in the NBA, how much exploration of the towns and the culture and everything do you get to dive into, or is it pretty much just get there, go to the hotel, and do the game and leave? What's the schedule like for for that level of broadcaster? Uh, early in my career, uh, there was a lot of exploration. I really enjoyed that part of the job, traveling the country, seeing cities that I had never seen before, experiencing them on a social level, on a historic level. And somewhere along the line, that is not as much of an objective because oftentimes during my football season, during my basketball season, I'm crossing over into so many events that any real free time I have, uh, I'm committed to preparing and trying to get ahead sometimes. So I can't say that, that I do that quite as often as I used to. And even my travel schedule doesn't allow it. I'm streamlining more than I ever have. You know, let's take NBA travel as an example. Most teams, if you're part of the broadcast group, you travel with the team. So if the Nets are playing the Washington Wizards on a Tuesday night, the Nets will leave Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. and head out to Washington. 
I just don't do that anymore. I don't travel with the team. I end up traveling on my own because I need that Monday night to spend with my family or to prepare for other events or to prepare for this game. And I can't just uh, justify going to a city the night before unless I can make it productive. So often I'll travel when I'm able to, the day of the game, morning of the game, and then streamline all of that. Get into the city at 10, 10.30, grab a quick lunch, and then hit the books and continue to work, whether it's on that night's game or a game that I have two days later, a football game on a Thursday night or a football game on Sunday. So it just doesn't leave a whole lot of free time to go out and enjoy the city that, that you're visiting on that particular day. Have you ever had any travel near misses, keeping that in mind that you don't necessarily leave the day before? Have you ever had delays come close to not allowing you to go on air? I've only had one. Uh, One very near miss. It was my second year of doing Nets television, so you're talking about 1996. It was a Net game in Boston. I was flying in day of the game with Jim Spinarkle, who was uh, my partner for a long time on Nets games and my longtime partner on CBS. And he had the idea of flying in, getting there in enough time to grab a cup of chowder near the arena and just go right in, like literally wear your clothes that you're going to wear for the game that night. So I think we were on you know, maybe an 1130 flight. He said, oh, I've done it all the time. This was still new to me done it all the time. This will be great. I go, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So that's what we do. We get to the airport and they're not boarding. And you know, this is before cell phones and what have you. And the information age had not hit us. So uh, we're delayed 15 minutes, then half an hour. And I'm starting to get a little bit nervous, but Jim doesn't seem all that concerned. I decided, all right, I'll just walk up to the gate agent and, and ask a question, thinking that the answer was going to be very... Uh, specific to what I needed to hear. And the question was, hey, are we uh, taking off pretty soon? And that was the question. And the answer was nowhere close to what I was expecting. The woman said, oh, no, no, I don't don't think this flight's going to go at all. And there was a pause. I said, what? She said, oh, yeah, no, it's snowing hard in Boston. So I I don't think we're going to be taking off. I turn around. I walk back to Jim. He's reading the newspaper, not a care in the world. I go, Jim, they said that the flight's not taking off. He said, what? He, they said there's snow in Boston. And now panic sets in. And we dart out of Newark Airport, go to Avis, rent a car, and start driving to Boston. Now, keep in mind, there is a snowstorm in Boston, but we're not even concerned about it. So we're driving to Boston. We get over the GW Bridge. We're getting close to 95. And Jim turns to me, says, hey, uh, can we stop for Wendy's? I said, no, we we can't stop for Wendy's. There's no Wendy's. We have to get to TD Garden. So we're driving, we're driving, we're driving, again, pre-GPS. I said, do you know how to get to Boston? He goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. He didn't really know how to get to Boston. So we end up taking the long way. Now the snowstorm hits, and it's coming down in sheets. And I'm driving, and I'm just dealing with it. And I'm gripping the wheel, and Jim, I turned to him somewhere along the line early in our drive. I said, look, 
You tell me, because you've been doing this longer than I have, you tell me when you're truly concerned that we're not going to make this game. He said, you got it. I'll tell you. And we're now about an hour outside of Boston, and the game starts in an hour and 10 minutes. And he turned to me and said, I am truly concerned we're not going to make this game. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, I don't think we're going to make it. We pull up. It's a 7 o'clock tip. We pull up to the arena at 6.47. And I just pull up to the side of the arena near a loading dock. And I'm just going to leave the car there. I don't care at this point. We're running out of the car, and a guy comes walking down. He goes, hey, what do you think you're doing? I said, oh, we're the broadcasters for the Nets. Uh, we got to be on the air in, in 10 minutes. And he says, all right, well, just give me your keys. I said, well, look, I'm, I'm from New York. If you're going to steal the car, steal the car. I don't care at this point. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to steal the car. I'm Jimmy the valet. I'll go park it. I said, really? You're Jimmy the valet? You just happen to be walking? He goes, yeah, I'm Jimmy the valet. I go, okay, here are the keys. So he takes the keys. We run up the stairs. There's a security guard at the top of the stairs. We explain who we are. I said, excuse me, can I just ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, the guy downstairs that I just saw, he goes, oh, yeah, that's Jimmy the valet. I go, okay, good to know. So we run up. We see that Matt Lachlan, who was our sideline reporter, is now in our location where you would do the stand-up. And Michael Corrin, who was the radio analyst, is next to him. They're about to do the open. It's seven minutes from the open. And they see us running through and just start cracking up. And we literally replaced them, the producer who we had not been able to call because there are no cell phones at this point. He hits the IFB, says, I'm sure you've got a story. I don't even want to hear it right now. This is what we're doing in the open. We're five minutes from air. And that was it. We did the game. Now you wonder, well, what happened to the rental car? The PR director, Jeff Twist, longtime PR director for the Boston Celtics, I asked him to stop by at halftime. I said, hey, uh, Jeff, we actually had to drive a rental car here, and we're going to jump on the Nets charter going home. I said, is there anybody within your department, an intern, that I could uh, give them some money and they can return the rental car to Avis? He said, yeah, yeah, we could do that. He said, where's your rental car? I said, Jimmy the valet has it. He goes, oh, yeah, I know, Jimmy. Yeah, we're all set. No problem. And that was that. I gave a kid a hundred bucks. He returned the car and I flew home with the nets. Did you ever see Jimmy, the valet driver again? No, no, I, I, I don't even believe he was a real guy. I feel like <laughs> it was a mirage. Uh, I'm not convinced that, that any of that actually happened, but there was a person named Jimmy who took my keys and I never heard from Avis. So how informed are you? I'm not asking for what the NBA is going to do or anything. I don't think anybody knows, but do they, give you occasional updates just as into, hey, we're looking into something, plan X, plan Y, whatever, or are you just completely in the dark? No, there are no updates. Uh, we are in the same position as everybody else, uh, trying to follow whatever information is available. I have a lot of faith in Adam Silver and upper management in the NBA. There are a lot of smart people within the league, and I think – uh, they've got contingencies in place, but anyone that pretends to have a real insight into how this is going to play out uh, is 
probably just barking up the wrong tree right now. Uh, there is so much that has to happen in the world before we get to the point of figuring out what's going to happen with sports. And that's honestly the way that it should be. We need to prioritize. We need to understand what's important. Certainly don't want to minimize anything that's happening in the world. Sports has to be aware and has to be ready and they have to have plans in place. But no, I, I don't, I don't know how this is going to go. And uh, when we find out, we find out. That's the way that I've tried to look at it. All right. We'll wrap this up pretty quick. Ed, what advice would you give to a lot of the, the sportscasters in an up and coming position who this is I mean, just like all the restaurant workers and a lot of other people, I don't want to you know, throw a pity party for the sports casting industry, but there's a lot of people are having issues. But for those who are out of work or are losing income, losing revenue, what would you say to them? Well, I certainly don't have the magic words that makes all of this better. Uh, I would say to anyone, trying to remain positive is going to be much more beneficial than focusing in on the negative and uh, how this is affecting me and me and me and me, trying to look at it from a, a larger macro view. And the advice I would give is when we do get back to our normal everyday lives, there is going to be an avalanche of opportunity. There's going to be a lot of sports out there that we're trying to cram in. And I would tell each and every one of your listeners that, uh, do this for a living, to be ready and to be prepared and to make sure that when that tidal wave hits that uh, you can jump on every one of those opportunities that are available to you. And if you felt good about where you were heading into this pandemic, there's no reason you shouldn't feel good about it when it's over. Uh, if you're doing quality work, if you're constantly trying to improve and trying to expand your network and trying to maintain your contacts, that shouldn't change now. You just have to do it with the right touch, and you have to understand that there is a lot going on in the world, and we are all just a very small part of it. But that doesn't mean that you should completely turn it off. You still have to be engaged in your career, in your job, in improving and watching and criticizing yourself and assessing your evolution and development, none of that stops right now. You've got to be ready to go and raring to go when this thing picks up again. All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up again. Ian Eagle, the voice of the Brooklyn Nets, also works for uh, CBS. And Ian, we'll get you that T-shirt that you can finally you know, tell everyone that you've be been on the show twice. Logan, maybe a trophy. Whatever you feel is appropriate, I'm comfortable with. What if it's a signed picture of the guy from the Jubilation in Newark clip? <laughs> if, if you can find that guy and get it signed, <laughs> I would gladly accept that as a parting gift. All right. Well, Ian, uh, thanks so much for coming on again. All right, Logan. You got it. Good to talk to you again, buddy. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on your favorite social media outlet, and any time that you share this podcast, it really helps it grow. 
I also appreciate Apple Podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback. It's greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, whenever that may be, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.